Awesome. Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Everybody, welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly show where we dive deep into a few news items that overthink them, overcomplicate them, and give you back the brain power that you need to write your books. Joining me today, we have a short list of authors here. The shortlisted. That's how we can how we get to use the industry term. Shortlisted. Got a Nick Thacker and Jim Heskett. I, I don't know what that's really out with Oh. You don't know that term? I didn't. No, I'm not really industry. I'm making my own industry. Oh, if you Nick's were um, nominated for an award, you would have been shortlisted. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, never had that happen to me. Or congratulations, Jim. What I do? You were once nominated for an award. <laughs> he knows what the term shortlisted means. <laughs> I'm a formerly decorated author. <laughs> That's right. Yes. Yeah. So thank you all for joining us today. Looking forward to talking about some news. Our last show. Oh, it's not going to be our last show. It is the last show that we're recording of the year. It's going to be it's the first show of the year, right? Yeah. So as we go into this new year, one of the things that I've been re-looking at, re-looking at, yes, because I have looked at it before. One of the things I'm looking at again is how much time I should spend on social media. And so our first story today, we talk, it's actually about whether authors need to be on social media. And if they do, what can they do to better handle it? What do you think about this? Honestly, I would defer to what you say. I think you're the social media guy, at least in in the circles that I follow. You seem to do it really well, Roland. Um, I hack at it and then I think secretly I hate it and the universe knows. So when I try to do social media, it's like, nope, you don't like me. So I'm not gonna be successful for you. I don't really like the first article that there, that is linked in this article. So if you're following along the show notes, this article is from a Alligator author? What does that say? A Cargill? Oh, A Cargill. Okay. AC Cargill. AC Cargill. Change your domain name, AC. Come on. C Cargill Alligator Author.com.wordpress.com. It's a mouthful. Good article, but I, the first article they link to is why authors should not use social media by our, our good friends at TCK Publishing, which of course is Tom Corson Knowles. And they say that you should not use social media because their vested interest as a publisher is to keep authors writing. I think that's a big load of bull honky because. No publisher worth their salt, and I know because I own one, is doing as much marketing as an author can and should do them themselves. It's just not going to happen. You're not Stephen King. They're not going to do the marketing for you. Do you agree with that? That's true. I would agree with that. I do agree with that. Good. I like to be very right. much done. <laughs> or keep track. Hash marks. Are you, Jim? I think when people write about should or shouldn't authors be on social media, it's they're looking at the wrong things. They look at it really too binary. Either you run your business on social media or you don't. And I think whether or not you should be on social media, completely, it depends on your purpose. If you're on social media to sell books, you're probably going to fail. There are some authors out there who hit it big on selling books on Twitter or TikTok or whatever. But the problem is those people are outliers. And the further problem is we all authors listen to all the same author podcasts and those outliers always get invited to come on podcasts, which perpetuates this idea that they're not outliers. 
because everybody's yeah. talking about them, but they are. You're probably not going to hit it big with Twitter ads. You're probably not going to hit it big on Instagram. You might, but it would be like lightning strike. It would be like waiting around to win the lottery as a strategy. Now, social media for other things like networking with other authors, for finding beta readers, for finding ARC people and street team, for developing your super fans, you can use social media to do all those things very effectively. I think it's the perfect place to do it, actually. Want to find your super fans? Go where they are. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's 100% of us are listening to 1% of us who've had success with one thing. <laughs> yeah. We all think that's how. It's, no, that's just the one person we found who was successful with Book Talk. <laughs> no, I think you're right on, man. The only people I've seen successful on Book Talk are people talking about how successful you can become <laughs> on Book Talk. Like, I've never been on Book on TikTok and found like a thriller that I went and bought right away. It just doesn't happen to me. And maybe again, I, I do think it's more skewed to romance over there, but what isn't as far as marketing goes, books go? I don't know. Maybe I'm just not the right target market. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the people who, I think Jim's right about the, the kind of people who make it big on social media are the ones that get invited to talk about how you can make it big on social media too, because it's very rare. It's weird because a lot of authors and people who work with authors are on social media. So you don't want to really tell people to be off social, off, get off social media because there are some areas if you are working with a lot of authors, like you probably do want to be on social media because a lot of authors aren't on social media. And we all see the mistakes they make trying to market to other authors. These are the people that should be marketing to the other authors. So may, maybe it works for them. But in general, I think most authors should be on social media, but they don't have to spend their time on social media. Like you have to be found on social media because if somebody's looking for you, you just need to be where they're going to find you, but you don't have to be hanging out there and you could have pinned posts at every one of your sites saying, Hey, come join my Facebook group because I'm only really active in this group or come join my discord server or my Slack group or find me on Instagram. If you're only on Instagram. So like, you don't have to be everywhere. Um, yeah, I know, think especially active everywhere. Like I always, I always refer to social media as outposts. If your website is your home base, these social media platforms are outposts, your YouTube channel, your Facebook page groups, whatever you're in, those are outposts. Like those are ways people you're not directly connected to might stumble across you, decide to like you because your platform is attractive in some way to them. And then they'll find how to find you the way that you fully control. And part of it is because it's just impossible to maintain more than one home base. It's just, it's not going to happen. They're always, I, in my opinion, should always have one focal point. If you're maintaining a website, that's your home base. But the real reason I say that is because you'll you you control, you fully control your home base. You own it. It's your website. It's your domain name. It's your server files. Like all that stuff is literally yours. That's not the case with any social media platform, unless you're Mark Zuckerberg and you do own Facebook, but you're not, you don't own that. So don't invest too much in a platform that will change. It doesn't mean you shouldn't invest in it, but it's like, this is never going to be yours, fully yours. So don't try to make that your home base online because the rug can be pulled out from under you. So that, the way I approach social media is I'm really, 2023 is going to be, for me, it's going to be a bunch of, we were talking before this show started that I'm getting into YouTube more and that's, I see that as a social media platform. Really what I'm going to be trying to do is repurpose content and then that will be spread out across all the social platforms that I want to be active on. So YouTube will have videos, but then I'll take the audio from those videos and do a podcast. And then I'll take the transcript of those and work it into a blog post, which I'll share on Twitter and that kind of stuff. So I'm going to be doing one big piece of content, for example, once or twice a week, but then 
the idea is to spread that out across all these social places. And then the last thing I'll say on it is the reason I'm doing it that way is I don't think we should build our social media platforms to attract people. Not putting stuff on my Facebook page so that I can go find new people to follow me. I'm building it in a way that is attractive when people find me. So if somebody happens to stumble across my page, they'll know, oh, this guy's got a sense of humor. He's snarky, sarcastic, whatever, likes the avalanche. I like hockey. That's cool. Oh, he's an, he's an author. I read thrillers. I'm going to go check him out. I haven't mm. built anything for that person. I built it for me. It's who I am. It's my brand, if you will. But it's attractive to people when they come is the idea. The flip side of that is it's not attractive to people who won't like what I have to write, or what I have to say. That's really important. I don't want, I'm not writing books for everybody. If you're a historical romance reader, you're probably not going to love my books because that's not what I write. And so when you get to my social platforms, you're going to hopefully see that right away that, oh, this guy isn't really my people. That's fine. I'm not supposed to be everybody's people. I don't even like people. <laughs> I don't, I'll stop ranting, but that's my, my, my social media talk in a nutshell. But yeah. I think if anyone is listening and wants to follow someone, go follow Roland because you do some really cool stuff on social media. I think it seems like it's working well. I guess I like the messaging. I don't know how well it's working or not, but it, it, I like what you're doing and how you do it. Yeah. I'll be honest and say that what I do on social media doesn't sell a lot of books, but like I also work with authors and I have health coaching clients. So if I'm sending those messages, like it, but it takes a while. It's like, it's still an investment. I mean, I've, it's a bigger ticket item. So if you're coaching somebody and you spend time on them, you're building this relationship first. You don't need to build the same kind of relationship to sell a first book for people spending a lot of time. I got to build this relationship. I don't know. I didn't have any relationship with Stephen King or Terry Brooks or J.R. Tolkien. I barely knew the guy and still read all of his books, except for the long ones. They were too yeah, boring. Yeah, were too, too big, too long. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say what you're going to say and get out of the way. Yeah. Another take on this is if you have a social media platform that you really, and you want to spend some time there, spend time there as if you're hanging out with your friends, not as marketing. And you also keeping the fans that do find you, keeping them fans or building them, taking them to the next level, right? Not finding beta readers and arc readers and reviewers, and then also networking with other authors, but it's hard. It's like winning. It's kind of like winning the lottery. You see somebody like, hey, going down to the liquor store and shaking their lottery ticket that they won. You just because that guy won doesn't mean that you should go down and buy a lottery ticket too. Jim, you know what would help you determine if social media is helping you to sell books? Stop doing it and see what happens. That's my advice to you, author. Complete. Just stop your social media presence completely today. Wait two months and then see how your sales are affected. My guess would be probably not that much. Yeah. But, yeah, I think that's a big, good challenge for a lot of people, right? Yeah, excellent. All right. Let's move on to, to the next one. And I think, again, going into the new year, we talk about you want to set yourself up for success. There are... author. Every author is different. They do things differently. They've all found success differently. They've all had those certain struggles, but there are certain common denominators that most authors do, I almost said it, have done. I almost said, and <laughs> sorry, it was your duty for of one of you to stop me and you didn't. Yeah, but there's certain common denominators that they've done that have, that we find in successful authors. And I think it's 
some good things to look at in this list. Did anything pop out at you? I'll go first this time. I like the one about being able to edit yourself. I think that is something that's incredibly difficult for new authors. And a lot of authors have been writing for a while too. And it really just comes down to, I think all six of these tips can be boiled down into don't be precious about your work. (laughs) which is something that is incredibly difficult for new authors. I was exactly like that. My early books were my babies and people just didn't get them. But you, I don't feel like you can't really have a career as an author. You're never going to move units until you figure out how to stop being precious about your work Mm. and how to look at it as a product while you're creating. Yes, that is your golden God of a piece of artwork. But once it's done and it's got a cover on it and your name, that's a product and you don't care about it any more than the next product. That's how you have to look at it. It's just another thing in my inventory and I have to be able to put it to free without being upset about that. I have to be able to raise the price without being upset about that. And I have to be able to treat it as if it were written by somebody else. And I think that's what career authors eventually figure out how to do. Yeah, man, I was going to say a lot of this, I can sum up by saying, take your writing seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. I just, that turn of phrase or whatever it's called, because it, it implies that, hey, your work is important. Don't treat it like it's not, because then it, that's going to come through. Put the time in, put the work in, do the research, do the do your homework, read books on craft. That's all making sure that you're taking your writing seriously. But then when it come, push comes to shove, don't take yourself so seriously that number one says, let themselves go or let yourself go. Get rid of the inner sensor, the humorless second guessing naysayer. Like that's taking yourself so seriously that you can't get out of your own way, which goes hand in hand with the one I really is number five, professional authors rescue themselves. For this author's talking to another pulp writer, over 200 books. And that person told her each one is a pain in the ass in a different way. And it's so true. Every single book I've written has a different problem that I didn't realize I was going to have to bail myself out of. But taking my writing seriously means I'm going to find a way to get out of it. I'm just going to, I'm going to do it. Maybe I need more research. One book I just finished writing, it's a techno thriller. And I realized it wasn't a techno thriller up until the inciting incident. And I needed something to add. And I it, only by taking a step back and looking at it was I able to do that. So I like this list. The only one, I don't know. I like, yeah, I like this list. I think number three, bag lordly de- delusions. Is not, I don't really know what, I guess I, I don't I know. Thought I, it was, I, I thought it was a little right. confusing, I think, but it, I, I'm not saying it's bad advice, but I guess what they're saying is don't be like pretentious, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Which, yeah, if you can get through your day to day without being pretentious and that's. I think they're like, oh, I can't write this because it's not art. It's like, they're, it's like, it needs to be super literary, which is fine if you were writing literary fiction, but. Yeah. I think it's the difference between deciding to write a book with a certain theme versus discovering the theme naturally as you write it. My, my very first novel, I set out with a theme and a message I wanted it to have. And boy, did I hit people over the head with it in that book, because that's what happens when you deliberately try to set a theme. Stephen King says he doesn't worry about that until the second draft, because after he writes a draft, he's going to go through and note similarities or note patterns and then go, okay, I'll lean into that in the next draft. And then it's usually not belligerently theming at people. I'm the first to admit that I don't think my books are strong thematically. However, I, maybe this is just the second half of my career so far, but I think I do a pretty good job of going back and dropping in some hints about theme because when I'm writing the first draft and I dictate a lot. So a lot of times I'm just burning through an outline that I've written. There's no theme in sight, but by, by the end of it, maybe the 75% mark of the first draft, I'm, Oh, I know what this is about now, at least as far as theme is concerned, obviously good versus evil, but like something deeper, good people can do bad things is my current work in progress theme. Right. Um, 
then I'll go back and sprinkle in one or two sentences throughout the whole book that talks about theme. I'm not going to try to really beat you over the head with it because the book is already written. The story is there, but the theme kind of helps pin that story to something deeper, hopefully. But anyway, I'm agreeing with Jim. I think that's all, that's part of what we all try to do. But if I took myself so seriously, it was like, oh, I'm just a thematic God. I'm just going to tell everybody what's right and what's what and all Then I, my books would suck because of it, because it'd be, everything would just be theme and no fun. Do, do you feel like as far as not to go on too off too of a t- much of a tangent on theme, but do you feel like you both write thrillers of different types, some part of overlaps, do you, your readers look for themes or do they just get the theme? Like they just, my assumption is that the, they don't look for it. They're not reading my book because oh, I wonder what theme he's going to, he's going to write about next. They're picking it up because of the story. I always like to say, if I'm doing my job well, they'll pick my book up because it hooks them, which is the plot, the story. Oh, it's Die Hard on a Cruise Ship. Oh, that sounds fun. But they'll fall in love with it because of the characters. And if I really do my job well, they'll want to come back to it because it's deep enough because it has a theme. So it's like a tertiary priority. Not that it's not important at all, but in thrillers, I like reading thrillers because the story is fun. I'm not saying that they don't need to have characters in it, but it's only it's icing on the cake if the characters are really well well rounded. I can still enjoy a thriller if the characters are just not quite there, but the story was fun. I, I still enjoy those books. But man, if you get me a story that's got an awesome plot with characters that are real and well developed and nuanced, and then you give me a theme, something to think about, something to go deeper, it's a perfect book. I think like another die hard, like movie. Die Hard, like Die Hard. It's a, it's a perfect movie. Yeah, because of the theme. No, six like, of them. Like, really like theme, really like real practice. All stuff. six yeah. of All them. six of them. Or something else to literary fiction, which is unfortunately a real genre. I think that's flipped around. It's theme first, then characters who support that theme. And then, oh, there has to be a plot because I'm writing a book. You know, and that's how we get absolute literary trash, which is so thematic, it's almost disgusting. And characters who are so over-the-top emotive that they're not even close to being real, but it's beautiful prose, tacked onto this plot that doesn't make any sense. Because I don't love literature. (laughs) You just offended our literary fiction writer. I don't. Also, just forgot what I was going to say again. We were talking about theme. You're probably going to disagree with Do your readers look for theme? (laughs) Because, Nick, like, Roland, like you mentioned, I write thrillers. Most of my thrillers are standalone-ish in that there are little changes in the characters from books to books, but you could essentially read most of them in any order and still get a complete story that's not confusing. And that makes things a little bit harder. Like Nick and I wrote a a, a six book series that was serialized. And so that stuff has got thematic stuff all over it because characters are growing and changing from book to book. And there are permanent things that happen to characters to change them. But if you write more standalone kind of stuff, I don't think you could really go into those huge sweeping character changes. Like people don't want Jack Reacher to become a pacifist. They don't want Jack Reacher to decide to go into politics or whatever. If he had a huge change in one book, everybody would stop reading it. They want basically the same Jack Reacher. And what I do is if I try to give more character arcs to, to villains or to side characters so that readers can still see somebody change over the course of the book. But generally my heroes only go through minor changes and they, the hero tends to have a consistent theme. Like in my Micah Reed series, his Micah's theme was about redemption in each book and how he's working toward that. But then other characters have their own individual stories. Gotcha. He's working towards redemption, but he can never actually be redeemed. That's up to the reader to decide if he is or not, I suppose. (laughs) Is the series over? Yes. 
Okay. So Jim, you touched on something that I believe is true, my opinion anyway, with when you're writing theme, I don't think it's the writer's job to provide the answer to that thematic question. I think it's the reader's job to do that. The writer's job is to make it really like a well-balanced argument between two or more points of you have a thematic question. Is it okay for good people to do bad things or vice versa? Don't answer the question. Like it's, we, it's our job to provide this argument and say, well, this side, the villain wants this happens to be the same thing the antagonist wants, but maybe in a way that we could say isn't ethically or morally above board or vice versa. What do you think? And basically in, in the book by solving the plot questions, wrapping that up, but leaving the thematic question open for interpretation. Welcome to the theme show. I don't know anything. With Jim, Nick, and Roland. I like that. I think it's great. I think that comes, a big part of that is from not hitting them over the head, like you both have said, and you can, it's open to some interpretation. It leaves, it's, a book is more interesting if there's some questions you still have to ask and think about. If I can just belabor the point with kind of an, an aside, my first book I ever wrote was originally called The Golden Crystal, and uh, it's now The Atlantis Stone. You can go back and read this if anyone hates themselves enough, but I didn't get that early on. It, it wasn't specifically about theme because there's no theme to be seen in anywhere near my book, the first one. But I didn't realize that a lot of books leave, they let the reader interpret things in certain ways. And the example is like a, a an action scene, specifically the scene where I have a villain shooting a good guy, like an, he's an old professor guy. And instead of just killing him, just, hey, you shot him and he died. He's got him on the desert floor and he shoots like his elbows out one at a time and then his knees one at a time. And I'm describing it like gratuitously and it's extremely violent. And I'm like, yeah, that's what all these thrillers are like. And then I went back and read the book that I was had in mind. I think it was a James Rollins novel that I was like, oh yeah, he does it in here. And I read that scene that I was copying or lifting a little paying homage to. And the scene has nothing like that. It's basically, yeah, he, the bad guy shot the good guy and then we moved on. It let the reader, I had interpreted all that by reading this other book. And I was like, oh, it was the way that he wrote it made me think that he was doing all this stuff. But that's the key. He made me think that. Mm. I went and just wrote it and just said, this is what happened. And then and everyone was like, what the hell, man? This is like super dark. <laughs> <laughs> so that was one of the, when I, when I went back and that was like the first thing that I changed was like, okay, this part is over the top. Like it's insane. I'm not writing horror. And it was just, it was so bad. That's that like I had to go back evil, and just like That's like some down. evil dead stuff there. Yeah. And it was so out of the blue. Like the whole book was it tracked pretty well with like action adventure type stuff, archaeological thriller. And then you get to the scene, like in the middle where I'm like, it takes a professor Jensen is one at a time. Are you dead yet? Just torturing the guy. And I was like, all right, this is a little much. Also, there's, there, there's a vote. There's a vote right there for sometimes sharing scenes that you feel might be too dark with other authors. Nick, when Nick and I were writing Six Assassins, one of the one of the scenes, one of the books is she's chasing a jigsaw type killer, and she stumbles onto one of his kill scenes. And I had written the scene and I sent it to Nick. I was like, "Is this too dark?" And he just wrote back, "Jesus." And I was like, "Okay, yeah, it's too dark. I got, I should pull this back." No, I've got a little bit of a weak stomach. I'll admit, like I don't want any scenes of torture, sexual oh, same, abuse, like same that. Here, kind of, yeah. I don't like that. That's just personal thing. There are very good books written that have those types of scenes in it. So if you can do it, great. I just, I don't even yeah. like to, my mind to go there. So, but Probably this is a great example, though. Jim, because a lot of advice in the author groups is to really not use other authors as your sound, as your partners, right? Be, and move on to beta readers. But sometimes, sometimes it's really good to have some trusted sources 
that you can share something real quick to and well, say, you, hey. I think if you give your book to another author and say, what do you think? They're likely to tell you what they would have done, which yeah. isn't necessarily helpful. Yeah. You know? But if yeah. you give somebody a scene and say, is this too dark? That's a simple question they can answer yes or no after reading it. That's very true. That's very true. Let's wrap this one up with one last. We're going to bring this back to self-editing, which I think Nick just did a great job of talking about self-editing. It was a little bit in the future, right? So he went back and, oh, you know what? I'm going to self-edit this book for the second version, second edition with a new name. But also, I just wanted to, Jimmy, you said you like this thing about self-editing, which I do too, right? I self-edit all my nonfiction books, but I still have an actual editor. I think there's two different things. I think that in the article, it, was a little, it didn't clarify the type of editing to do. So there's like the editing before you send it to the editor or the proofreader or something like that. I still think there's a, definitely a case for a professional level of editing, no matter somehow you need to get it a professional level of editing. And I think that's the part where it's hard for an author to do themselves without either some software help or some actual third party eyes. Yeah, being able to developmentally edit your own work is not easy because it takes a lot of objectivity to look at something like a character and decide that character's not working. And that character may have some great lines that you just love and you hate for them to go, but that's what Kill Your Darlings means. It's Kill Your Darlings dot if they're not working. Okay. Yeah, I just ripped out a guy named Ezekiel Fry, who was a world-renowned reclusive computer programmer, hacker type guy, long, wispy white hair, real creepy look, great idea. And I was like, he just doesn't fit. I've been doing this long enough where I'm like, okay, if I've got to remind myself that Ezekiel Fry has to do something in this chapter, why don't I just get rid of the guy? In the like, he was really cool when I introduced him and he had a cool scene. And I'm like, I can just smash this guy in, into Jocelyn's character and then have her kind of be that impetus throughout the rest of it. Totally agree, Jim. I think it's hard to do. And this is where it just comes down to experience. If you're going to do it yourself, you have to have the experience to be able to do it yourself. Um, even then, I think there's just so much to be gained from having another author or authors who write in that genre who also have the experience and can look at it with a pair of third eyes, set of a set of third eye or the set of, the set of I don't know eyes, other eyes. What am I talking about? What's the third? Yeah, that's never mind. Okay. Um, oh. You know what I'm saying? Another set of eyes. Because unlike if you're sending it to another writer and asking and getting, you're not asking them for feedback on how they would do it. You're asking them for the objective feedback of does this work? I like to do that in outline form because then the pros won't get in the way. If there's a really well outlined scene that just simply doesn't work because you've written it terribly, that's all the author is going to be able to give you is, I don't know, I, you, this chapter is so bad, it's, I just can't even. But if you give them an outline, this is what we do at Conundrum when we have a round table. If we have an outline, we can go and say, okay, let's assume you're going to be able to write this really well. Great. Here's where it's breaking down for me. Your midpoint isn't really a midpoint. There's no twist. There's nothing changing. Your hero's not moving from this proactive, from this reactive state to a proactive state, whatever. You can much more identify those problems when it's an outline form. So I do that for myself. Every now and then I'll send one out to that same round table. Jim's part of that to get their feedback. But a lot of times, and I've got experience, I've done this 30, 40 times now. I think I'm pretty good at objectively looking at an outline of mine and saying, where is it breaking down? And the reason I can do that, last thing I'll say, is the experience combined with, I always use like a framework for that outline. So if it's a story, Sid Fields, screenplay, a story, beat sheet, whatever it's called, or if it's Jack Bickham or something else, there's some kind of story structure that I'm following there's 12 beats or 12 plot points I have to hit or whatever it is, I can very easily line up my outline and say, okay, well, 
I've said this is the midpoint, but it doesn't really work as a midpoint in terms of that what that framework says a midpoint is. And so I'll rework it. And then when I'm time when it's time to write, I know I can just dictate nonstop and have a book done, and it's going to be okay. Yeah, yeah. I think to, I agree with everything you just said. And of course you do. I know, I know. This is your show. Final show. I just want to be like super supportive of you and give you like a, you know, wrap your end up your year up when it really well. But I think if we look at this list of the items that are that the professional authors do, I think one of the things we could say is also that they didn't always do that the first time from the beginning. That's what they do now. And that's why they're professional. As they become professional authors, they didn't always self-edit. They didn't always know how to do some of these things. They didn't. So they, they got help at the beginning. They took classes, they took courses. It's like the 10,000, is it the 10,000 hours? rule like the Malcolm Gladwell like you can't just do something for 10,000 hours and expect to be better you have to do it with deliberate purpose practice yeah. a deliberate <clears throat> purpose and get feet and if it's something that requires feedback that's like you can teach yourself to juggle with 10,000 hours because you know when it falls you know when you drop it but you need to actually get feedback from somebody else readers coaches editors on some of these other things in order to make positive progress yeah and then one day you too will be a professional author. One day yeah. you might be invited to host this show. That's right. Authors. Or to be an outlier on some podcast. Or be the 1% talking about yeah. how you Start got famous show, you selling books to... on your street corner. And then you get invited on an author podcast to talk about that. Every street corner from that moment <laughs> forward was covered by indie authors. <laughs> I heard this is how I was successful. <laughs> Yep. But that's you what we sign. Like, and you can way. find them at IndieAuthorStreetCorner.com. There's a Mark Dawson Nick course. Nick is now. Indie Author Street Corner 101. <laughs> Not true, actually. Don't sue me, Mark. He's a lawyer. So. <laughs> In Britain. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you can't touch me over here. <laughs> that tax me, Mark. Thank you both for joining me this week. Thank you all for listening to Author News Weekly. And hope you're having a – this is the first of the year – 2023 and hope you're having a great start and look forward to joining you next week with more on author news weekly have a great great day everybody thanks for listening